Good morning, everybody. I'm Seth, one of the pastors on staff, and I get to teach us through this uh, bright and shiny text this morning. Um, I, just before we get any ideas, I asked to teach this text, so someone said, like, Luke always puts those weird ones on you, you know, and I'm like, hey, I asked for it, so um, you're wondering, why did you ask to teach this text? Well, I'm actually teaching um, 2 Samuel 13 through 18 today, which is kind of a, there's a lot of narrative there, a lot of subplots. Uh, you know, there's stories about these guys like Jonadab who help you sin, another guy named Ahithophel who's a flip-flopper, this guy Joab who's you know, overly aggressive. There's all these great subplots, and so if you really want to get into the narrative, I recommend you doing that. But more so than that, this is really a story about a father in David and what he gives to his kids, uh, his son Amnon, his son Absalom, and his daughter Tamar. It's really a story. The main plot line is how does he relate to his kids? And also, where do his kids' patterns of relating come from? And so I titled this sermon, What Fathers Give to Their Kids, or What We Get from Our Fathers. Uh, you know, and I think that that's been a big part of what I've been thinking through as we read through this text, is these generational patterns of what we see again and again in Scripture, and how we... Uh, and just how much real life there is in that, that we tend to sin like our parents, mothers, and fathers. And this story is about a father and his sons mostly, but also his daughters. So I'm going to talk about what we get from our fathers, but moms, you are not off the hook. But mostly I'm going to talk about fathers because David's a father in this story. Uh, but just the, the pull of that, and I can see that and sense that. You know, my kids are not that old, but I can already see the way I'm negatively rubbing off on them, right? It's a lot easier to see that you know, I've, I've, the sin is extremely contagious, and that should make us, as parents, whether it's parents of young kids, parents of old kids, whether you're you know, you know, 97 and your kids are 77, like your sin is still contagious. It's not just early childhood, but we tend to pass these things on. And that makes us a little nervous. So like yesterday, uh, we're, you know, we're, it was overall, like a, I would call it a, a good parenting day, uh, meaning like you, we talk about trying to set our kids up for success, which for my two-and-a-half-year-old son is mostly like, give him an opportunity to get his energy out as much as possible. You know, we go to Home Depot, which is like Disneyland, uh, except for like better in every way. You know, like there's, especially now that there's the Halloween decorations up and the Christmas decorations up, we take him there, scoom around, and he's just like, this is the best place on earth. Can we go to Home Depot, Dad? You know, and so we'll go to Home Depot, walk around, buy nothing and leave, and, you know, just say thanks for the AC. You know, and so we go in the morning, we go to Home Depot, get his energy out, the whole thing. We go to this football game that got delayed, you know, Saturday afternoon, and he's running up and down, sweating all that crazy. Going, and then you sit down at dinner, you're like, we've successfully should have got his energy out today, but we were not even close, you know, and he's still like totally going nuts at dinner and you're trying to talk to him, trying to connect, and it's like this whole thing. And also, like, all day long, I've been like really engaging in parenting, and so I get, sit down for dinner, and I'm going, I'm going to talk to my wife, and then my son's like making grunt noises at my daughter back and forth, and like, that's fine, I don't need to listen to that, and so I'm trying to talk to my wife, you know, and then my son is going like, dad, 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 and he just, dad, and eventually like, he crosses that line, and I'm like, Jay, don't yell, you know, and so like, a, a better parent would do what my wife does, and say like, hey, when you want my attention, just put your hand on my arm, and then I'll respond when I'm done talking to the adults. But I just tune it out, tune it out, tune it out, tune it out until it's annoying and then I pay attention to it. You know, that's... Well, then later, you know, after dinner, uh, Jay's playing in the dog food because, of course, you do that, you know. And, and I'm like, Jay, 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 Jay! And then he turns around and looks at me and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I've been training him successfully to only... 
to only respond to a raised voice. Because I'm teaching him, I'm going to ignore you until you raise your voice to me. And I'm now seeing him, he's ignoring me until I raise his voice to him. And I'm like, oh, this is just a downward spiral of, of terrible. You know, and you already see that, like, the inconsideration, you know, like the, the, the you know, and uh, you just see how contagious your behavior is and how much it, like, really affects and, and really, and really gets, gets bleeds onto, right? And it's, as a young parent, or a parent of young kids at least, it's, uh, you know, I'm sure that those patterns of what we give to our kids will get more and more obvious over time, not less and less obvious. Uh, and the, just the formative power of this. But also it's like when I see my son sinning like I sin, I'm less courageous in confronting it because I feel like a hypocrite. I mean, when he sins in a way that's different than me, I'm like, knock that off, that's not right. But when he sins in a way that's like I sin, I'm like, hey, we all struggle, but if you could top, you know, it's just like, like it's, you know, it's, you know, like you're just, you lose the courage to like say what's right and what's wrong when your kid's sinning like you sin. And so uh, just in like the last chunk of my time, but like we see, so here's my big idea that we're going to kind of have under guiding all this is that sin is really contagious and it's a courage killer. Right, when we talk about what we get from our fathers, David's sons sin exactly like him, and that is part of what contributes to him being a courageless, passive, abdicating father in this story. That our unclean consciences often handicap our ability to do the right thing and, and intercede in the proper way. And so I'm going to look at this text, and we're going to see mostly, and so like I said, I'm skipping over a lot of the plot lines, but I want us to see that from 2 Samuel 13 through 2 Samuel 18, the main chunk of this is we're supposed to be looking at the sweep of the story on how David is failing as a father to his children. Right, we've talked about how David starts off like this kind of knight in shining armor, bright, thank goodness. Here's this, here's this young man with courage fighting Goliath. And then you come to this story, and here's this David who's handicapped, like he's, 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 he's like handcuffed, not handicapped. He's, hand, he's handcuffed, not acting, and he's afraid to confront his children. What happened to the, the giant killer? And now he's this, can't even close tension with Mike. So we just, this is kind of where we're playing out. It's like now his personal failures are leading to parenting failures and he's creating generational patterns that are going to cause problems. So let me pray and then I'll summarize the plot and look more deeply at the text. Jesus, I ask that you'll have mercy on us. I know that even the subject of this, of sexual assault, of murdering, of abdication um, from our fathers immediately raises the blood pressure of so many people in this room because this stuff is the stuff of our lives. Uh, that none of us in this room are very far removed or removed at all from this reality. Father, I'm thankful for the, the grittiness and the reality that you show us in your scriptures. And I hope that you will help us uh, find a path towards more intimacy with you and uh, better patterns of relating in the relationships you've given us to lead. In your name we pray. Amen. So just a quick summary of this text, and then we're going to look at, uh, zoom in on some things. So first thing that happens is Tamar is violated by Amnon. Very severe. Like uh, the, the, the intensity and the, the reality with which it's described is uh, impossible to misunderstand what's going on here. Uh, it is real life. The statistics on it are what they are. A lot of you probably are familiar with them, but it's like 
assaults like this happen way more often than we want to admit. And they happen in places like this way more often than we want to admit. And I think part of what we want to do as God's people in reading the story of Tamar being invited by Amnon is just recognize that this is the real world. We're not doing some type of like bubbly, fuzzy, pie-in-the-sky Christianity that just deals with only with positive things. Like the world we're living in is still, it's still despicable. One of the things Tamar says is like, why are you doing this to me? Aren't you an Israelite? Don't you know that we don't do this type of thing in Israel? And her sense of disappointment is not just in the act, but also in like the, but I thought you were one of God's people. Aren't you better than this? How often can we say that about the evangelical church? About us? In this room, the people like us across the globe. I thought you were God's people. I thought you were better than this. Like just a sense of disappointment, not just in the evil act itself, but also the location and person from where the act is coming. That just adds to disappointment. The hypocrisy of God's people. Then what happens is, Ab- is uh, Amnon murders his brother Absalom. He kills him. Takes matter in his own hands. Uh, takes justice in his own hands. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if I see someone going 75 down a 45 and no police officer pulls him over, I can't just go pull that guy over and be like, here's a ticket. Like, I don't have the authority to do that. You know, he, I can't take justice in my own hands like that. I'm not a law enforcement officer. And so here you have a brother doing vigilante stuff rather than doing justice. Kind of acts in his own way. Uh, then uh, there's this ongoing uh, awkward silence between Absalom and David. David does nothing, David does nothing, David does nothing, David does nothing, David does nothing. For years and years and years, David does nothing. Then eventually Absalom steps up into this gap that David's created and he kind of conspires against David and does this power grab saying, hey, David's a bad king, I'll be a better king. I'm never disappointed in him. Hey, I'll come to me. Absalom again is like prone to taking things in his own hands rather than like relying on right process. And then David and Absalom have this massive conflict. This war thing goes on. Um, David tries to get his people to capture Absalom and not kill him, but ends up being that Absalom dies. Absalom gets killed. That's Second Samuel 13 through 18. It's really a story about David and his three kids and how he relates to them. And so we see these three major sins most obviously. But I want to take a step back here and pretend with me that you're like a first-time reader of this text, right? So we're reading 2 Samuel. You have David, this king. He's kind of doing his thing. Um, He's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. It's all going well. The kings go off to war. In 2 Samuel 11, David stays back when the kings go off to war. Then David commits sexual assault on a woman named Bathsheba. Then in an attempt to cover up his sin, he has her husband murdered, or he orchestrates it. Then he kind of just says, well, solve that problem and goes back to business as usual. But then Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and David repents. So you have David uh, raping and murdering in 2 Samuel. And the very next story, here's what happens. Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister named Tamar, David's daughter. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. So right after the story of David committing sexual assault and using, his, like, using violence to achieve his, his goals, you have David's sons committing sexual assault and then using violence to achieve their goals. When you read this text, you're going, I can plainly see how the sins of the father are being repeated in the sons, but to even a greater degree. 
This is called Generational Patterns of Sins. I went to lunch with a friend this week, and he said, what are you learning mostly, personally, through studying First and Second Samuel? And I said, I'm becoming obsessed with this generational patterns thing. You read what happens, what gets passed down, who repeats what, how like the, the sins of the father get passed to the sons and how they go on repeating it, and just the power of what you see modeled to shape your behavior and your affections. Right? Do David's sons rationally understand that sexual assault and murder are wrong? Yes. But there's this like gravitational black hole force that pulls you towards sin, especially sin that you've seen done before. That like the sociological, like we are made as relational beings, made in God's image, that we are, with the way we learn to speak, the way we learn to walk, the way we learn to relate, it's all learned through what we observe and that it's impressed in our mind and then we repeat it. This is like the essence of formation and discipleship is that what we see, we repeat. And here you have David's sons repeating David's sins, but even greater way. I just want some of you in this room, a lot of you in this room to understand that what you receive from your father or your mother has incredible power over you. And the amount of work you have to do to overcome that by the power of the Spirit through prayer and in community and processing and in discussion is tremendous. That breaking generational patterns, it's one of those like, if it was easy, then everybody would do it. That a lot of you in this room are now like, I would say, relatively spiritually or emotionally healthy people. And the difficulty, what you've had to overcome to get there is way more than what other people have had to overcome to get there. Way more. Some folks are relatively spiritually, emotionally healthy and it's kind of like they're born on third base and they just kind of walked home. Oh, here I am. My parents were great and kind to me, present, attentive, attuned, taught me about Jesus, modeled a great life of service. But that's the minority. Some of you folks are born on home plate with two strikes, no balls, and odds are you'd strike out, and you've had to overcome, 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 and look where God's brought you. The work is not done. It is very difficult to break these paths. Like it's, it is part, and it's difficult by design, right? God made us relators. God made us relational beings who would see and connect and imitate. That's, that's part of the design. And so when we see sin, we want to imitate sin, and the difficulty to alter that trajectory is substantial. So the two sins here, most obvious on the surface, are sexual morality and like using anger or violence to get your way. Like, and I think when I talk about most people who like have broken family systems, those two things are the biggest. Like either like sexual morality or uh, like this kind of anger-driven, violence-driven mode, whether it's like actual physical violence or just like emotional, like threatening presence, uh, like exacerbating, inciting uh, those are the two biggest, obvious ones. Like if you find yourself getting your way through presence or through threats or through demand, like through that like implicit or explicit threats, like uh, maybe it's like actual like physical violence or threats of violence, you gotta just be, be mindful of that. But those are the two ones that, that what David gets to his sons. 
But there's something even worse, and I'm going to call this the greatest sin in this text. Greater than what happened to Tamar, greater than what happened to Amnon, is what um, David doesn't give to his sons, right? So here's, when I read this story, there's like this, the narrator is pounding this, how, like reiterating this, is the amount of time that David does nothing, right? So there's um, sexual assault and morality, there's like anger or abuse of power, and then there's like this third category here, which is abdication or the non-use of power, is the non-pursuit. So I'm going to read these ones. So this is Second Samuel 13, verse 23. After two full years, Second Samuel 13, verses 38, for, um, and he was there for three years, Second Samuel 14, verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, Second Samuel 15, verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom spoke to the king. So what we have here is two plus three is five, plus two is seven, plus four is 11. 11 or so years of David being a passive father. 11 years of David not doing the right thing. 11 years of David not picking up the reins. 11 years of David not pursuing his sons. 11 years of David not weeping for his daughter. 11 years of David. So we have here in this, this twofold failure of David. David's failure as a king, inability or refusal to execute justice, and David's failure as a father. The king-father thing. Right, so Tamar is violated. And Deuteronomy 22 gives really clear instruction about what to happen when this happens. There's two options when someone is assaulted like this. Number one, the assaulter gets put to death. Number two, the assaulter must provide for her for the rest of her life financially. Those are the two options. David as a king should know the law, and he should have either said, depending on context, uh, he dies, or in the context, he's financially on the hook for her the rest of her life. He must provide. And instead, David does nothing. Failure as a king to do justice. It says, after full two years, Absalom goes on and takes it in his own hands and kills the offender, Amnon. Now, is Absalom responsible for his decisions? Yes. Does this give license to Amnon to do the wrong thing, for Absalom to do the wrong thing? Absolutely not. But had David done the right thing right away, Absalom would not have even had the chance to sin in the first place. The sin of passivity is a different type of evil because it creates the opportunity for other people to sin. That in the midst of David refusing to step up and lead, Absalom, as a foolish young man, kind of takes matters in his own hands, and then when that happens, that's not a good deal. That's David's failure as a king. The second thing is his failure as a father. This is a story that makes you ask, Where's Tamar's father? So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Not in her father's house, not in David's house. David doesn't weep for her. David doesn't show up for her. David doesn't do the right thing on her behalf. David does not. Here's what it says, verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And his anger amounts to nothing. Emotions that don't lead to actions in the face of injustice are worthless. When you talk to some trauma therapists, they talk about there's the trauma, the bad thing that happened, but then there's what they call the trauma before the trauma. This is the unconnected, 
not pursued, not cared for, not protectedness that creates the environment where trauma can happen. David sends his daughter, Tamar, into harm's way without protection, without consideration, says go for it, gives the benefit of the doubt to the wrong people, allows it to happen, and then when the terrible thing happens, he gets mad and does nothing. Now you can say, is this cultural? Is, that, is he not weeping because, you know, of male cultural norms, you know, the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. That's not true at all. David weeps about stuff all the time. What we see at the end when Absalom does actually die, this is what it says. When David's son dies, David's son who conspired to steal the kingdom from him, David's son who killed his other son, David's son who was plotting his own father's destruction, when David's son dies, here's what happens. It says, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh son, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh Absalom, my son, my son. It's heartbreaking stuff. You see this father weeping over his son who died. He had said, please don't kill my son, bring him back alive. His henchmen kill his son, and then he weeps and weeps and weeps and laments and laments and laments. And so it's not that David is incapable of tears. It's that he's disproportionately affected to one of his sons that leads him to be a coward and inactive, and you're going, why wasn't he like this with his daughter? I don't know if any of you saw the Elton John movie that came out a couple years ago, but there's like this heartbreaking theme in it where uh, Elton and his father aren't emotionally connected. His dad doesn't hug him, his dad doesn't kiss him, his dad's not warm to him. There's not this like intimacy or connection and Elton kind of like rationalizes, well, you know, it's, you know, it's the silent generation, you know, and then, you know, he saw some stuff in the war, you know, and it's like, it's not really, and, but then later on and when Elton's older, he looks through the window and sees that his dad has had new kids and he sees his dad holding these children and embracing them and kissing them and, and, and loving them. And all of a sudden, like there's this, he was clearly capable of it. He just didn't give that to me. Maybe I'm the problem. Like this deep feeling of shame when parents' emotions are spent on the wrong things. When my father won't weep for me, but will weep for something else. When my father will give his passion and soul and energy to that, but he won't give his passion and soul and energy to me. Maybe it's my fault. The feelings of guilt and confusion and disorientation that happen in children when the father's emotions or passions are misplaced. David does not weep for his daughter. And then David does not pursue his son. For two years, he does nothing. Absalom uh, destroys some stuff flees, and David lets him go for three years. Verse 39 says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon. So he's like grateful that his son had the courage to do the thing that he didn't have the courage to do in the first place, even though it was wrong. But again, his heart goes out, but it doesn't lead to any action. David's passivity wins the day. Again, his emotions lead to nothing. Then Absalom moves back into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a big place. It's not like Houston where it takes an hour and a half to drive across Houston. Like Jerusalem's like a solid medium-sized place. That if you're going to go two years without seeing someone in Jerusalem, you're doing it on purpose. Uh, Eugene Peterson talking about this text said, the sins that David commits against Bathsheba are obviously evil, but they're committed in a day and in a rage of passion and 
the sins against, he commits against Uriah are evil, but they're committed in a period, and this t- tends to cover up, um, and not at all to minimize those two things, but it says the sins that David commits against Absalom to shun him for years and years and years and months and months and months and to harden and harden and harden your heart over time. This is a sin that you had to be committed to for 11 years, not just 11 weeks or 11 days. Like deciding to not be the father who pursues his son, to decide to be the father who distances and hardens and withdraws. This is a decision you make again and again and again. So while the sins against Tamar and the sins against Amnon and the sins against Absalom are severe, the greater sin in the narrative here is David's abdication of power. Both his power as a father and his power as king. And so this core sin here is what I'm calling the misuse of power. That sexual assault and murder are misusing power for wrong. But the non-use of power, the passivity, the cowardice, the refusal to act, the having emotions but doing nothing, this is the non-use of power. See, in our current cultural moment, everyone understands the misuse of power is a bad thing. And that's not really new information, even though people kind of act like it is, right? It's, it's, but we act like, well, therefore, we should just not use our power. That use of power is bad. But imagine a society where the people who, you, who had power and refused to use it for good. Imagine if law enforcement officers stopped enforcing DUI law. Or imagine if firefighters stopped driving their fire trucks to put out fires. Imagine if teachers stopped teaching. Imagine if pastors stopped preaching. Imagine if fathers stopped fathering. Imagine if mothers stopped mothering. Imagine if everybody who had the capacity to use their power for good just decided, no, I don't want to misuse it, so I'll just not use it. I don't, want to t- I don't want to accidentally do the wrong thing, so instead I'll do nothing. But the wounds of this trauma before the trauma, a father that doesn't pursue, a king that doesn't instill justice, a father that doesn't own and repent and move towards things, like this, these are the more destructive patterns. Even like relationships between fathers and, and kids, mothers and kids, like where there's rupture and then repair, the relationship is actually stronger than it was before where there's just absence, abdication, withdrawal, distance, coldness, the leaning out. The wounds this create in children in terms of self-worth, sense of personal value, uh, security to act and to move in the world, like these are deeply damaging things, more so than even the misuse of power, the non-use of power is, at least in my little pastoral experience, has been more destructive. Eleven years. David's angry. David's sad. He doesn't do anything. Eventually Absalom dies. He weeps. The next story, David gets confronted on this stuff by Joab. Like, think with me as Redemption Gateway. Like, imagine if we were a place that despite having been parented by people like David... We set new trajectories. We set new patterns. We set new habits. We establish new values. 
When tempted to lean out, we leaned in. When tempted to misuse power, we wouldn't. When tempted to not use power, we would. What did that take for us? What would it mean for your kids, for your grandkids? Whether you're 97 with 77-year-old kids or you're 27 with 7-month-old child, like we have this tremendous capacity as God's image bearers full of able to subdue and have dominion by the power of the Spirit over the sphere to which God has sent us, we can actually break generational patterns. Some are more difficult to break than others, but they all are breakable. This is part of the capacity that God gives us as His people. But what I want us to understand is that there is a king greater than King David who will teach us to lead. And there's a father greater than Father David who will show us how to be a father. And I imagine that when Jesus is telling the story of the parable of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, of a father who was wounded by a child and the child ran off and did a bunch of dumb stuff, that this father, unlike David, didn't do nothing for years and years and years, but he waited and prayed and waited and prayed and waited and prayed. And as soon as he saw him, it's a chap- Luke chapter 15, verse 20, that when the son was coming back, as soon as he saw him, in contrast with David, who for another six years would not speak to his son, this father instead says, while he was still a long way off, he saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he brought the best robe and he put it on him. He put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found and they celebrated. The capacity for parents to be gap closers, to be reconcilers, to be um, pattern breakers is tremendous. In the face of the temptation to be passive like David, we can be parents like God most high. But what it takes is setting our hearts, setting our minds on actually the affection and care and pursuit that God has for us. Because whether we got that from our parents or not, we are getting it from God the Father right now. And our imagination can be healed. Our sense of possibility can be enlightened. Our sense of hope for our generational line can be invigorated. That we can see that there is a king among us who's different than King David. That there is a father among us who's different than our fathers. I don't care how good your father was or how how bad your father was. You must gaze with the eyes of your heart at your heavenly father and allow yourself to be healed into the type of parent who can actually image and represent God well and this is possible. Like I think that in this room, in this church, and I know some of you have already broken so many patterns. You've already changed such trajectory. And I just want to encourage you, you can go further. You can get even more healthy. You can be even more conformed to the image of Christ. Some of you have not even yet begun to do this because you feel trapped and stuck and you just see yourself repeating the sins of your fathers. You're going, what hope is there for me? And I want to tell you, a lot. A lot. That your Father in heaven pursues you. Like you wish your father on earth would have. That your father in heaven knows you like you wish your father on earth knew you. And when we walk into that, when we live into that reality, we can be healed 
and transformed and made new. And we can then love like we weren't loved. We can pursue like we weren't pursued. We can chase after like we weren't chased after. That we can connect like we weren't connected with. And it's only in receiving and acknowledging and prayerfully working into our gut of guts the Father in heaven's love for us that this is possible. And so we need to pray, we need to sing, we need to process. But I hope every person in this room sees that no matter how much you have to overcome, you have to overcome it. And you can and you will with the Lord's help. Let me pray. Father, help us see that you're a king greater than David, a father greater than David, that you're a better leader than we ever have had in our own households, a better father than we've had in our own households. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just sit back and judge the leadership or parenting we received, but rather we would acknowledge how it's affected us and we would be uh, pattern breakers for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. God, as we sing, I pray that we'll believe these words. And as we pray, I pray that you'll change our hearts. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.